Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Donald Hoffman, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thank you very much, Robert. Thanks for your kind invitation. Really excited to talk to you. Uh, I had the pleasure of reading your book, which we're going to talk about today, The Case Against Reality, um, about a year ago. And... It was, you know, I actually read it right before I went on Lex Fridman's podcast as a guest. And I had read it in conjunction with this other book titled Leela by Robert Persig. I don't know if you've read that one yet, but I'll, I'll bring it up in our conversation I today. Uh, I think there's okay. some interesting connections to conscious realism, as you talk about in the okay. book. Um, so sorry, by way of introduction... You are Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Science at UC Irvine, and you are the author of the book, The Case Against Reality. And um, I guess I'll just open up with an excerpt from your book just to kick off the conversation, and we'll see which direction it goes here. Um, and I'm combining a couple of excerpts here from your book, but you write that the purpose of a desktop interface is not to show you the quote-unquote truth of the computer, where quote-unquote truth in this metaphor refers to circuits, voltages, and layers of software. And you're making the case that perception is something similar. So perception is not a window on objective reality. It is an interface that hides objective reality behind a veil of helpful icons. Is that the approximate synop like thesis of the book how do you how do you put the thesis of the book in a nutshell i tried to choose a couple of excerpts that made sense but i'd love to hear it directly from you right so the case against reality the, the case i'm trying to make is if we're trying to answer the question do our senses report truths about objective reality i see the moon am i entitled to say that there really is in objective reality, an object that is round and has craters on it and so forth, and that exists even if no one perceives it. Am I entitled to do that? Mm. Am I entitled to take my perceptions um, as not exhaustively true and maybe 
wrong in certain points, but but substantially true. Mm-hmm. That, that's, the, that's the technical question. And when you have a question like that, you can try to address it as a philosopher. You can look at it, think conceptual analysis and so forth. And that that's and that's been done for for hundreds of years, not millennia. Mm-hmm. And there's another way as a scientist that you can look at this. And you can say, look, um, we've learned a lot from the conceptual analyses and the logical analyses of the philosophers, but we can also do something else. We now have a theory, a scientific theory, about how sensory systems evolve. And, and that theory is evolution by natural selection. And as a scientist, I'm not claiming that that theory is correct, but I am claiming that it is the best that we have so far. Mm-hmm. And as scientists, it's our duty not to be dogmatic about our theories and say that they're right, but it's also our duty to take our best theories and push them to the limits and ask, ask them tough questions. And so that's what I decided to do is, is to say, look, without being dogmatic about evolution by natural selection, I still want to see what that theory tells us because we have no better theory right now for, for sensory systems, right? That's the best we've got. And so it turns out that that theory is mathematically precise now. We have evolutionary game theory, evolutionary graph theory, and genetic algorithms. And so it's not just a hand wave. It's not like, as you know, evolutionary theorists, we have to sort of you know, shoot the bull and persuade each other. No, no we can just do the math. And, and so that's what I, with my graduate students, Justin Mark, Brian Marion, and, and um, uh, other colleagues, um, Chaitan Prakash, Manish Singh, Robert Prentner, Chris Fields, um, Jeff Iverson, and, and, and others that I, you know, I can't mention everybody, but so it's not just me, but we, we've looked at this um, precisely you know, with, mm-hmm. with mathematics and, and simulations. And the answer is very clear. The probability, according to evolution of natural selection, that any sensory system has been shaped to perceive any true structures, and I can talk about what I mean by structures, but any true structures of objective reality is precisely zero. Mm-hmm. And the only structure that evolutionary theory requires to be preserved is something called a measurable structure, um, a probability structure. Mm. And we can talk about that and its implications if you're interested. So there, there is one that's required to be preserved. And, and that's required simply because to be a scientific theory, you must assume that the probabilistic structure of objective reality is non-trivially related, non-arbitrarily related to the probability structure of, of what we can measure in our experiments. Mm-hmm. If the outcomes of our experiments are probabilistically unrelated to mm-hmm. um, probabilities of events in objective reality, then science itself is not possible. Mm-hmm. So because evolution by natural selection is a scientific theory, it requires some kind of what we call a homomorphism of, of mm-hmm. measurable structure. It could be infinite to one. So it could be that that the collapse is, you know, is remarkably <laughs> a lot of information is lost. But beyond that, evolutionary theory, um, in its current formulation, has no further stipulation about other structures like like total order. Like if you think about the numbers one, two, three, four. One is less than two. Two is less than three. Three and less. And it's it's a total order. One is less than all the bigger numbers. Two is less than all the bigger. Mm. So it's what we call a total order. Um, so 
So total orders are not required to be preserved. And, and evolutionary theory says, when you look at the math, the probability is zero that that uh, total order will be preserved. Metrics, topologies, all these things. Uh, and and the, the reason is pretty simple. When, you know, I didn't realize this going into it. I mean, in retrospect, you look back and go, how, you know, I was pretty dumb, but, mm -hmm. but you do the work and then you, you realize mm -hmm. that the logic is pretty simple. You, what we did, in, we did a number of things to, to look at this, including genetic algorithms. And that really sort of tipped me off that this was, that evolution wasn't showing us the truth. It was, it was just keeping us alive, mm -hmm. full stop. It's just, mm -hmm. it's about fitness, period. Mm -hmm. And and when we literally take the theory that's faced by and it says, uh, yeah, evolution is about fitness, end of story. That means it's not about truth. And it would be remarkable if you mean know, it turned out mathematically that being fit um, also meant seeing the truth. And we might think intuitively it should, right? You know, surely seeing the truth would make you more fit. Mm. But we can talk about why that intuition is is, is just wrong. But anyway, the 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 reason intuitively that the mathematics is, is very very clear that we are not shaped to see reality is if you look at the notion of fitness in evolutionary theory mm -hmm. it's it's it, the when we mathematize evolutionary theory effectively you can think about it as a game we're mm -hmm. playing a game and so it's, it's like you're playing some game like grand theft auto or something like that where where you're competing with other people um, maybe you're trying to get points and you're trying to stay alive to get into the next level of the game or, or whatever it might be. I mean, there's lots of different games with different strategies, but you're trying to win points and get more points than the competition. And if you get more points than the competition, um, you, you will go to the next level. Well, in evolutionary theory, you don't go to the next level, but your, your, your genes, your offspring go up to the next, you know, mm -hmm. into the next generation instead mm -hmm. of the next level. And so when you look at those fitness payoffs, mathematically, what they're saying is whatever the state of the world is um, and whatever action you take, you could get these points, right? So maybe from zero to 100 points or whatever, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And so it's for every state of the world and for, for whatever I am and for whatever action I take or whatever, whatever the organism is and whatever action it takes, there will be payoffs, and zero might mean you're, you're you know you're doing really poorly, and 100 might mean um, that's the best you could possibly do. You'll have lots of offspring, and when you just now look at all the possible fitness payoffs, and you realize that evolutionary theory puts only one constraint on those payoff functions, only one, and that is that they preserve the measurable structure, but they, there's no requirement in, in standard evolutionary theory that they preserve any other structure. So mm. that means when we're looking at these fitness payoff functions, every possible fitness payoff function has to be considered. Mm. We can count all of the payoff functions. So if I have N states in the world and P payoff values, I can just literally count them as, as trivial combinatorics to count the number of total payoff functions. And then you can ask, out of that whole number of payoff functions, how many of them preserve this particular structure, like a total order or mm -hmm. a metric or a topology? And just count those. Mm -hmm. So, and you put those in the numerator, right? The number that mm -hmm. preserve the structure divided by the total number of payoff functions. And of course, there'll be fewer 
in the numerator, right? The number mm -hmm. that actually preserve a structure, that's a special property to preserve that structure. So there's going to be fewer of them. Right. How much right. fewer? Well, it turns out as you let the number of states n in the world get bigger and the number of states p, the number of payoff functions get yeah. bigger, and you, and you look at that numerator and denominator and, and, look, and divide them, and then look at the limit as the, the, the payoff values and the states of the world increase, it goes to zero. Wow. The, the, the ratio goes to zero. That means the probability is zero that the fitness payoffs even contain the information about the structure of the world. Mm -hmm. And so if, you're t if your senses are being tuned by fitness payoffs, and the fitness payoffs almost surely have no information about the structure of the world, then you can't be tuned to the structure of the world. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's a pretty, pretty simple logic. Now, I, I've gotten some pushback, mm -hmm. which is of course welcome and expected mm -hmm. from some brilliant colleagues and friends. And, uh, and the one kind of pushback that I think is is the the most important the, the some of the pushback it's is easily answered and and it's not worth going into but the the one kind of pushback that i've gotten from some brilliant colleagues and and actually friends new of, of my group is the idea that what if there are lots and lots of fitness pay, payoffs for you know so it's not just one fitness payoff function mm -hmm that's governing you, but there's lots of fitness payoff functions, the argument goes. And wouldn't that in that case mean that, that you could be tuned to the truth as opposed to the fitness payoff values? And there've been several arguments uh, to that extent. And, but the, so we've actually run our own simulations and looked at this a little bit. And, and the idea is most of them who are proposing this um, are looking at the fitness payoff over the entire world. And they're, they're thinking that this fitness payoff is changing all the time sequentially. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, what we're really facing is a plethora of fitness payoffs right now. So I, I look over, I see an apple, the fitness payoffs for that app related to that apple are very, very different. Now I look over here and I see some poison ivy. Well, very, very different pay up fitness payoffs for poison navy. Now I've got a knife over here, fitness payoffs. And, and if, as you realize, every object that you see is effectively a data structure mm. encoding a group of fitness payoffs and the actions and, and so forth that are related to it. So, so the way evolution works is, of course, there are countless fitness payoffs out there. And the way we deal with them is not to get rid of fitness and just see the truth. What we do is we construct these nice little data structures that we call objects. And objects are simply representations of possibilities of action and payoff that I might get. Mm -hmm. The actions and payoffs for an apple are very different from the actions and payoffs of a knife hmm. or a car or, or, or nuclear waste. Right. Mm -hmm. So so the way that we deal with countless fitness payoff functions is not to just see the truth and not to see the payoffs. No, what we do is we create these artificial things that we call objects. And we also create space and time mm -hmm. as data structures to to deal with all of. And so when you actually allow um, it, like in a genetic algorithm for this, what we would call hierarchical clustering, 
of all these fitness payoff functions so that you can cluster them into these nice data structures actions and payoffs that are roughly similar mm -hmm. we can sort of make this approximation that we'll call an apple mm -hmm. and it captures those payoffs or this approximation that we call and and, and so forth so so once once you do that so we've rerun for example some of the simulations that that our our, our colleagues have, have proposed and, and of course they didn't allow this clustering into objects as soon as we allow the clustering into the, into the objects which is obviously what we see then then their results go away so hmm. so so that's sort of a, a long answer to your question but but it's it's, it's I, I would just summarize it as, as follows when we ask the question do we see reality as it is we've we've done that with philosophy for millennia and that's been very 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 useful to think about it conceptually it's mm -hmm. it has not been conclusive mm -hmm. um and you can be a good philosopher and take wildly different points of view mm -hmm. as a scientist i realize we have this wonderful theory called evolution by natural selection it's a brilliant theory i love it and i don't take it as the truth as a scientist i don't take any theory including my own as the truth mm -hmm. i take them as the best theories we have so far and a century from now we hope and pray that the mm. scientists then will look back on our theories as quaint and mm. under they will have understood what was wrong with the theories that we thought were true mm. we can look back a century uh, or two at, at the the scientific theories there and we'll say we we can look at them and go wow well they didn't understand this they thought they had the truth mm. they, they should have understood this and so that we're no exception so with that attitude toward evolutionary theory, not being doctrinaire, but but recognizing that this is the state of the art. This is the best we have. We have no better tool right now. Then it's my duty to ask the question of that tool. And mm. when we ask the question, we get a very, very clear answer. The probability is zero. Now, there's a couple of reactions that you can have to it. You could say, well, then we need to change the theory because I don't like that answer. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Right? You can so so the question is. If you're going to do that, how are you going to change the theory such that it accounts for all the data that the current theory accounts for? Right? Mm -hmm. It's not trivial. The, these theories get the respect of a lot of scientists, not because they're true, but because it's really hard to, to fiddle with them right. and still cover the data. It's not saying you can't, but that's why it's usually an Einstein or a Newton who does it. This is not a Hoffman, right? So, right. so that's why, 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 why we go with these theories. They, one way to think about a scientific theory is it summarizes hundreds or thousands of experiments. Mm -hmm. Like so, so for example, Michael Faraday in the 1800s is famous, rightly so, for decades of incredibly detailed experiments on electricity and magnetism and frog legs twitching mm -hmm. and the whole bit. And he wrote down all these experiments, uh, you know, and, their, and, their, and, the, and the outcomes of the experiments. And James Clerk Maxwell, I think in the 1860s or something like that, or 1870s, I forgot where, when it was, looked at his experiments and realized that he could write them down in just a few equations. Hmm. And, and so we call them Maxwell's equations, and, and they transformed the, the world, our modern hmm. electronic industry is ultimately derived from Maxwell's equations. But Maxwell's equations, basically, you didn't need to actually read all of Faraday's experiments 
Mm. Of course, it's good to read them, and, and it's just good as a human being to understand what Faraday did and so forth. But right. if you wanted to get the outcome of any of Maxwell uh, Faraday's experiments, you could just look at Maxwell's equations, and they tell you what what you're going to get. Right. right? So it's it's brilliant to summarize all decades of work. There it is. You don't have to have right. like thirty hours of lectures. You just need today we can do it in one equation. So all yes. of Faraday is one equation. And when you understand that equation, you know all the possible outcomes of Faraday's equation. Now, it, it turns out that we have gone deeper than Maxwell's equations. So, and, and to do that is not trivial, right? I mean, Maxwell's equations do this incredible job. So the fact that, you know, like quantum field theory does a better job is truly a stunning achievement. Uh -huh. And then the new work beyond space time that's that's even letting leaving quantum field theory behind. It, it's truly stunning. But but you can see the bar gets raised every time we go to a deeper scientific theory. Right. We need a new team of geniuses that are able to transcend all of what humanity has done up to that point and come up with a new conceptual framework. Right. So that's why I focused on evolution by natural selection and said this is an incredible framework. I'm hoping that it'll be replaced in my lifetime. I'd love to see it re be replaced, transcended, but but it's not right now. And so um, it would be wrong to ignore it, absolutely wrong to ignore it as a scientist. And so that's why I take it very seriously when that theory tells us the probability is zero, that anything you see is the truth. Wow, a brilliant introduction. Thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna try and echo some of this back to you and then hopefully advance the conversation. So it seems like, you know, perceptions are kind of the bedrock on which we've built our conceptions of reality. We've always just taken our perceptions to be true, essentially. And that's what this theory is kind of calling into question. And to your point, all theories ultimately are just provisional, right? The, you know, even past theories, we could look at like Newtonian mechanics. That was really just a lower resolution model of the universe. Doesn't mean that it's wrong necessarily it's right in many cases but it's wrong at certain levels of resolution perhaps but we need to do that work and then condense all of that into as you're describing with max maxwell's equations right we condense those into something very simple very economical i would argue right all of this work is now distilled into just a few equations for instance and that seems to me the 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 edifice of you know the shoulders of giants upon which we stride right we stride upon that type of work distilling past work into more universal equations let's say <clears throat> but you so maybe your point is that perceptions there's something below the bedrock of perceptions for analyzing perceptions themselves and they seem to be this ratio of actions and payoffs perhaps so the I often go back to the logos here. I always think of the logos, you know, in, in biblical terms, we're not always talking about the prevalence and importance of the ratio and the word. It sounds like maybe you're describing perception as something like that, right? It's a code, it's a ratio. Um, well, it's an object-oriented programming comes to mind too, which I think you bring up later in the book. But so we are ultimately generating this sensorial experience as some type of a biological interface, according to your theory. And I guess the most... Uh, earth-shaking implications of that are space and time, right? Space and time are, mm, I don't know, the, the fundamentals of this user interface. How, wh what are space and time in this theory and how, 
how is that um, divergent from traditional notions of space and time, but also a, a concordant with some modern notions of space and time that they're doomed as you go into later in the book? How do you explain that to someone that is struggling with that idea? So, so I think at this point, the, the conceptual understanding of, of the moves that we're making here is very, very important. So with evolution of natural selection, what we've done is posed a specific question. What is the probability that anything that we perceive is true? The structure of what we're seeing is the true structure of objective reality. And the theory comes back and says the probability is zero. Uh -huh. and, and, and the theory says what you're perceiving guides adaptive action. So those are the two things that, that the theory says, what you're perceiving guides adaptive action and what you're seeing is not true. Mm -hmm. now, the theory itself does not then go on to say it's a user interface and mm -hmm. so forth. It doesn't say all that. So, so I want to be very, very clear what the right. theory says and then where I'm going with it, right? Yes. So uh, what I'm saying is, okay, what metaphor can I use for perceptions mm -hmm. that are, are not telling me the truth but are just guiding adaptive action because that's what evolution theory is telling me. And mm -hmm. the metaphor that, that I think is the most useful and if someone has a better metaphor, I'm all for it. But, but the metaphor I think about then is like a desktop interface or a virtual reality headset for a game. Software. Where, where, that, that software where you realize, okay, that, that like in a VR game, what I'm seeing is not the truth. Just like the evolutionary the mm -hmm. theory says you're not seeing the truth. And yet what I'm seeing guides adaptive action in the game. It lets me play the game. Mm -hmm. And just like evolutionary theory says, what you're seeing guides your adaptive action, allows you to play the game of life and, hmm. and hopefully have kids. Hmm. So that's why hmm. I went with this metaphor. So I want to, to be very, very clear what the theory says mathematically versus the metaphor that, that I then put onto that. Um, and, and so I think virtual reality headsets or desktop interfaces are, are a good, good metaphor for that. And I, and I would just mention one thing that, that often comes up in people's minds at this point where they say, look, isn't this self-refuting? You've used the theory of evolution to prove that none of our perceptions are true. Well, what about our perceptions of mathematics? Mm. Didn't you use mathematics to prove that mathematics is, is not true? And so, mm. you've got your, so you've shot yourself in the foot somehow, right? Self-inflicted wound here. Wound here. And, and the answer is the argument that the, I've given is only for sensory systems. So we've, been, we've asked a technical question about sensory systems. Uh, it's not about our cognitive capacities more generally, mm -hmm. right? So we have to, to be careful as scientists, we have to look at each one of our cognitive capacities under the theory of evolution of natural selection and ask, what is the probability that this capacity would, in some sense, give us truths or some mm -hmm. kind of verticality that we want? Now, in the case of mathematics, it, it turns out that there are going to be selection pressures for some facility with mathematics because we need to reason about fitness payoffs. Mm -hmm. Two bites of an apple mm -hmm. give me more fitness payoffs than mm. one bite of an apple. 
even if the apple is not the truth about objective reality, it's the the payoffs. And so, so their evolutionary theory makes it very, very clear that there will be some selection pressures for some facility with with mathematics, and it's not it's it's not. I'm not claiming that it's, it makes us into mathematical geniuses. Most of us aren't. Most of us can't even balance our checkbook without some effort. So, so, so we're not mathematical geniuses, but we do have some facility with math. And some every once in a while, the genes come together, and, and you get, you know, a, a von Neumann or a David Hilbert or some mm-hmm. other math, but a, a Newton or a Einstein. Well, Einstein wasn't a mathematician, but a, a Newton was. <laughs> and, a and so you, you get these these mathematical geniuses, and of course, you just get the genius of Einstein. Period. I mean, he. Uh, even though he wasn't a mathematician, I would say compared to most people, his mathematical level was a genius, right? So, mm-hmm. right. so you get that kind of thing coming out, but it's not that there's selection pressure for genius. There's just selection pressure for in evolutionary theory for you know being able to reason about fitness payoffs and, and you know and and stay alive because you re- reason mm-hmm. about fitness payoffs. So, so that the idea that you know there's some kind of logical self-shooting it, it is not right not correct so, so yeah what i'm hearing there is perhaps there yeah your your focus you're narrowing the focus of this onto sensor sensory systems this does not preclude our capacity or facility for uh logical deduction or mathematics right we there can be right. separate domains of uh consciousness perhaps that aren't um narrowed to this sensory system area. Okay, I want to, there's a lot of ground to cover here. So I'm going to try to pick a couple of things here. So this sound, again, it sounds economic to me, even perhaps the active perception in a way, it's like, how do you take all of this, whatever is, is being perceived and convert it into data that's useful for the organism and adaptive action, basically. So the quicker you could in- interpret that data and put it to action, the better. Space and time then are the, are these the base layer of this interface or the, the, the primary quality of this interface perhaps on which these icons of fitness payoffs appear? Um, and does that make the, all of this, the other thing I'm connecting this to is just the a concept of useful fictions. You know, we use a lot of useful fictions in uh, the socioeconomic world, right? You know, nation states, businesses, money, time, calendars. You make the point about the train schedule later on. Is that what we're talking about here? That this these our perceptions themselves are perhaps some kind of useful fiction for navigating whatever uh, truth is? Right, so there's two answers to that. One is to say, what does evolution by natural selection entail? And then what do I think beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. So the evolution by natural selection theory in, entails that, that, um, that space-time, whatever it is, is simply a perception that helps to guide adaptive behavior and objects in space-time are just perceptions that guide adaptive behavior mm-hmm. now if i go on to say more then then now i'm adding my own interpretation and so forth so right. so, so i just want to make clear what's the theory and then what what's hoffman now going on and saying his own thing yeah 
because you may not like what I have to say, and that's separate from <laughs> what the theory itself says. So I'm trying to think about space and time, you know, so they're not the truth, and objects aren't the truth, okay? And evolutionary theory can't tell us more. It doesn't say what they are. Mm -hmm. Besides guiding adaptive behavior, the evolutionary theory does not tell you what's behind. Mm -hmm. what, what is, so you're not seeing the truth, what is the truth? Evolutionary theory says, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I don't know. So mm -hmm. the theory itself cannot tell you. Mm -hmm. And so that's why as a scientist, I now have to take a creative leap and say, okay, let me, now that evolutionary theory has told me I'm not seeing the truth and it can't tell me what is the truth, this is the fun part of science or, yeah. or a fun part of science. Yeah. It's fun to see what the theories themselves tell us. That's, it mm -hmm. was fun and it was stunning. Mm -hmm. But now it's also fun to jump beyond the theory and say, okay, now is the time to take a creative leap. And of course, I'm probably wrong, yep. but you, you got to go out there boldly, be precise, and whatever you propose, here's the, here's the caveat. Whatever I'm going to propose beyond evolutionary theory, I have to project it back down and get evolutionary theory. So whatever mm -hmm. this deeper reality right. is, I need to get evolutionary theory and physics and so forth coming out. So it's, it's, it's not that you just can't do anything you want. Well, to begin with, you can, but eventually to bring it home, you're just going to have to give back evolutionary theory and physics and so forth. So what I'm proposing is that space and time or space time is just a data structure. We've evolved, mm. uh, like, like computer scientists talk about data structures that let, let you do certain things uh, easily. You, mm -hmm. You've craft your data structures to make certain actions go quickly and maybe without certain kinds of problems, certain kinds of errors and so forth. Mm -hmm. So. So I think of space-time as a data compression format. It, huh. we're, we're, we're crunching tons, probably ton, you know, countless dimensions of data where I'm using dimensions mm -hmm. intuitively. Yeah. We're, we're compressing them into three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. It's, it's probably a massive data compression. Mm -hmm. And objects are we're, we're probably taking thousands of fitness payoffs or whatever the reality is and crunching them down into something that is trivial, like an apple or you know, a, mm -hmm. a knife or, or whatever. So this is, a, so from a computer science point of view, what's probably going on is there's a massive data compression. And it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. As you said, we need to do things quickly. Yeah. We also need to do things cheaply, right? You don't want to spend tons and tons of computation figuring out that, oh, you know, there, my arm is being burnt in a fire and it takes you 10 right. minutes to figure out that your arm is being burnt in a fire and, and, and the damage is done. So you need, to do things fast. And, and by the way, that idea has led prior to our work, um, many evolutionary theorists to say that there are many cases in which we're not, in which selection pressures are against veridical perception. So Steve Pinker has a wonderful paper in 2005 called, So How Does the Mind Work? And mm -hmm. he canvasses five different ideas um, that were already extant then about why we could expect in many cases that we don't perceive the truth or that our, our cognitive systems um, you are, are give us false you know, ideas and, and percepts mm -hmm. and so forth. And one of them is, as you've said, you, you need to do things quickly yeah. <laughs> and, and you need to use heuristics and so forth to, to do things quickly. And heuristics aren't always going to be right. That's why they're heuristics. And so, so what I'm saying in some sense is in line with what many other theorists had said before, but where they where we're taking a new step that's that is surprising is where we say even everyday middle-sized objects like tomatoes, mm -hmm. 
and chairs and forks were not right about those either. And, and mm. most evolutionary theorists didn't want to go there. They would say, yeah, we can get, we can make it heuristics and do things fast. And so we might not get it quite right. But the idea that evolutionary theory actually says, no, when you see a tomato, there isn't a tomato. There's something deeper and the tomato is just a data structure. Mm -hmm. It's just data compression. Mm -hmm. um, something that's nothing like a tomato and space-time itself is just a data compression format. So, so you can see that this is, this is a radical point of view. Right. And, and that's uh, one thing I would say about this is it's really wonderful that science does this. When Darwin first wrote down his ideas, he was thinking in terms of physical animals, fighting other physical animals right. over physical resources and having physical kids inside a real space and time. That's how he was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So that's the, so the theory was founded in that intellectual, it was the physicalist realist framework. Right. And then John Maynard Smith in the 1970s says, well, we can take Darwin's idea about evolution of natural selection and we can get the algorithmic core, the mathematical core of it and write that down. And that's where we got evolutionary game theory. Mm. And that's the tool that I then used as he did that, that in the 70s. So it was in the, you know, like 2010 or so that my students and I started. So, you know, 40 years later, after 30 or 40 years after John Maynard Smith does that, then we start to use his tools. And those tools then, which get the core of Darwin's idea, go back and say, you know what? These other ideas that Darwin had probably aren't right, right? They're right. physical organisms. That's Those are just data structures the, the resources that they're competing for those are just data structures and so right. the and that's the beauty of science is that it tells you a scientific a good scientific theory tells you where it stops and right. it also can go back and question some of the initial assumptions that you thought were critical to the theory we thought that realism and physicalism were critical to evolution of natural right. selection it turns out, no, if you look at what, what is sometimes called universal Darwinism. Yes. For example, uh, Dan Dennett talks about this uh, quite a bit and so forth. When you look at universal Darwinism, the algorithmic core, that is what goes back and puts the lie to the physicalist and realist mm. assumptions that we most of us bring to the theory. And that I, I'm sure that Darwin brought to the theory. So that's the, the power of a, of a scientific theory I like to put it this way, it, it's it's sort of anti-dogmatic, right? Mm. It, it comes back and it says, this theory stops right here. These are the limits. And these assumptions that you made are provably wrong. Mm -hmm. And the theory then says, this is where I stop. And I don't know, I can't tell you what's beyond. So evolution is saying, mm. you don't see the truth, but I cannot tell you what the truth is. <laughs> and, and, and most people really get bothered about that. Hey, how in the world do you <laughs> go and say that evolution doesn't show us the truth? Wouldn't you have to know the truth before you knew that you didn't see the truth? Come on, you're, you're, mm. you're caught in another. And it turns out, no, it's, it, that's the beauty of science. The theory itself says, whatever you're seeing is not the truth. But I can't tell what the truth is. Right. That's the power of scientific theories. And so, so that's why I love to do science. Um, because when we just sit around and shoot the bull, <laughs> we think we know more than we, 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 we're much more confident than we should be. And our theories come back and, you know, Darwin's theory comes back and, and takes a gun to the very intuitions, some of the intuitions that led to the theory, which is right. really, that's beautiful. 
I love that about him. So. Wow, no, that's brilliantly put. So it's almost like Darwin was the, I mean, his own discoveries were the tip of an iceberg. He didn't even realize. Um, and this, I mean, is this related to just the the finitude of epistemology perhaps like there's certain things that knowledge knowledge can't contain perhaps the capital t truth so the best thing we can do to be fit to capital t truth is to compress right compress its data to things that are relevant to our actions i mean even words themselves or symbols that we're trying to put this thing in that those themselves are really useful fictions right like back to your earlier point on the moon, I think the Taoists have this old saying that the moon and the finger that points at the moon are not the same thing, right? These words and symbols, we're using their pointers to something, but they're not, they're just representations or icons, as you might say. Is this somehow, I mean, all of this seems, so I guess we're talking about intelligibility, perhaps, like the way we actually uh, intellectually fit ourselves to the world, but it also seems to be related to the essence of intelligence itself, which is ongoing process of error correction, right? The theories are sort of saying, here's a frame, here's a way to look at the world, here's where it starts, here's where it stops. <laughs> and then using those limited frames, we're trying to um, fabricate more universal frames and more universal theories. And that that is this an ongoing process of, I don't know, intelligence or intelligibility discovery, something like that? I think you're you're spot on. I think that that's uh, you really have hit it on the head. There are epistemological limits. We see that from evolution by natural selection of saying you're not saying the truth. That's a limit. Mm -hmm. But there there is this more fundamental theorem that uh, Kurt Gödel proved in 1930, mm -hmm. 1931, or something like that. Um, there are a couple of Gödel incompleteness theorems. What they right. what they basically say is. Um, take whatever notion of scientific theory that you have, where it's a, it's a rigorous theory and, and it has axioms and it can make predictions. And suppose that that theory has at least the, the sophistication to like do all the, do arithmetic. Mm -hmm. So, and most scientific theories do. Then Gödel says, <clears throat> uh, well, in that case, um, I can come up with a statement that you can see is true, but it can't be proven within mm -hmm your theory, your mathematically precise theory. And if you take that new statement that is true, but not provable, and add it to your base set of axioms, you, you might say, oh, now I'm done, now I'm good. No, no, now I can show you a new truth. Mm -hmm. There's another, I'll pull another one out, and, right. that's, that, and I'll show you that that one's not, not provable, but it is true, and, and you can keep doing that. And what that tells you is that any scientific theory that's mathematically precise, necessarily leaves out in terms of what it can predict mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from its productive rules it leaves out countless truths countless truths right and so that that so that as you were your intuition i think was, was spot on it means that there is no scientific theory of everything yeah in principle which means that there's complete and endless job security for scientists that's the good news yeah but but as you say spiritual traditions have been pointing to this as well that they will say you know the word isn't it the pointer isn't it the, the conceptual thing that you can talk about 
isn't it that there's this deeper truth and and all the all the words that we use in the scriptures whatever right. are, are are not it and don't take it to be it i mean that's no. that's the source of again dogmatism and religious fears when they don't understand that those words were not to be taken as fighting words and my words are your are right and your words are wrong those mm. were meant to be pointers to some deep common truth that that all the various kind mm. of religious and spiritual traditions are trying to understand about the human condition but, but we when we mistake the the finger right. pointing to the moon or the moon that's the source of again fighting and 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 killing each other and so forth over the pointers where where the, the real the deeper thing is what never mistake the pointer for the truth mm. don't get don't get attached to any particular pointer mm. because it's not the truth mm -hmm. always and, and so this gets to something the notion of pointer see this is again where science i'm sorry science and spirituality can really interact in a positive way what do we mean by pointer and truths that we point to, but but you can't actually define them conceptually. Well, I'll give you a con concrete example. How do you you have a an eighteen month old child, and you're you know fifteen months or something like that? They're starting to learn lots of words. So here's mom and dad, and there's their their baby, you know, uh, Samantha, and there's a, a bunny rabbit on on the carpet with Samantha Samantha. And at some point, you know, if, if Samantha is three months old and you point to the bunny rabbit, notice the point. Now, here's the here's the pointer. You point and say bunny rabbit. It's going to go over Samantha's head. She's three months old. That mm -hmm. pointer is worthless for mm -hmm. Samantha. Um, if you wait until she's five, you waited too long. You should mm -hmm. have been doing the pointer earlier. So around 15 months, Samantha is now ready. You can point and say rabbit and remarkably she gets it hmm. now there is remarkable in a couple senses first you didn't explain anything you gave some vocalization rabbit mm -hmm. that's all you did and you pointed a finger at it mm -hmm. she had to do all the heavy lifting mm -hmm. she had to figure out what so so you you didn't teach her anything she was all she already in some sense knows what a rabbit is you're just giving her a finger pointing to the thing she already knows mm -hmm. and a label for it so notice what you've done you you've not taken her any deeper into what a rabbit is you've just pointed to something that she already knows and you put a little verbal label on it. And that's how we learn language. And, and by the way, when, when you teach someone mathematics, this is an integer. Well, you know, if, if you try to explain mathematics to um, a gerbil, mm -hmm. good luck. <laughs> you could be the most brilliant mathematical teacher, but all of your pointers aren't gonna work because that, that and, and so it, it makes it really, really clear that this pointing relationship that the spiritual traditions talk about has we can give it a much deeper conceptual analysis using the tools of cognitive science yeah. where we actually can start to understand how this pointing relationship works and it there's a developmental sequence where a person is ready for it mm -hmm. before that samantha it would be pointless to use the pointers and when you do teach her the word rabbit what you've done is trivial you said rabbit and you moved your hand 
mm-hmm. trivial. She's doing all, and that's going to be the same thing in spiritual traditions. Mm-hmm. What a teacher can do is trivial. What they're really doing is pointing to you to say, look mm-hmm. at this inside of you. Right. And, and if, it, if it's not there, if you're not ready for it, the, the teacher can't do anything. Right. It's only when you're, you know, you, if you're the three month old, you can't do it. But if you're the 15 month old, you can't. So, so there's this deep connection, I think, between the notion of um, what we call ostensive definition. So the technical mm-hmm. term for what I just talked about, you know, pointing and, and naming yeah. the rabbit, that's called ostensive definition. And that's what spiritual teachers are really doing. The, the, the best ones are, are, are trying to metaphorically point a finger at spiritual aspects of you, like your, your being versus your, your false self and things like that. Right. They're pointing at those. But if you don't, if you're not in a position, if you're the, like the three month old, then you, you can't get it. If you're the 15 month old, you're just ready to get it. Right. And, and, and so forth. This so is you're, the you're absolutely right. Sorry, the, the, perhaps this is like the zone of proximal development, I think they call it, where when you're speaking to your child, you should always be speaking to them kind of like just a couple of levels above where they're at. So they're sort of aspiring, you know, they're, they're, they're imi- imitating you often. So you don't want to just talk to them at their level, They'll, they will never grow. But if you talk to them slightly above their level, you're kind of leading them into growth. That, that's, that's exactly right. So you, 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 if you take, you know, Samantha at, at 15 months old and she's starting to learn words, but you try to teach your quantum field theory, well, it's, it's just not going to happen. And, and, and I should say one other thing about why this works and the miracle about how it works. When you point and say rabbit, and she gets it with just one or two trials, right? You only have to do it one or two times and she gets it. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle for the following reason. How did she know what you meant by the word mm-hmm. rabbit? It could have meant the color of the fur or the texture of the rabbit's fur. Yeah. Or maybe it was the left ear and the, and, the, and the right paw or the left ear and the carpet that the rabbit was sitting on. Or maybe it meant the nose or one, the, the right whisker. You, you can see that there's an right. infinite number of hypotheses that Samantha could entertain when you point your finger and say rabbit. Mm-hmm. And, and notice if, if mom or dad points his finger and says um, quadruped, right. well, that's the wrong word. I mean, it's true, but you're messing your kid up. If you, if you say <laughs> quadruped, you, you, you're doing the wrong thing, and you know intuitively that it's wrong. So, so there is between the teacher and the learner in ostensive mm-hmm. definition, mm-hmm. there are unwritten rules there, there are no classes where mom and dad learn, do not say quadruped, say rabbit. Right. They just know. The, the, right. so the, and the baby is also knowing that mom is not going to go at this superordinate category level of, of thing. You don't go to the point to say thing. It is a yeah. thing. Right. That's the wrong level. And you don't say quadruped. You don't say mammal. You you don't say Peter Rabbit either. It's too specific to say Peter. Is it? That's right. So you're right. There is a protocol. That's right. And where does the same thing is true in spiritual traditions now? Sorry, we had a little latency. Please um, go on. Oh oh, oh, yeah. So you know, I like your question. Where where does that emerge from? Um, You're right that there is a protocol, and this protocol is taking effectively an infinitely complicated problem. There's an infinite number of hypotheses about what rabbit means. Mm-hmm. When someone says, you know, look into your soul and, 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 and be present. 
or you know let go of your false self and they're, they're giving you all these various pointers uh, again there's uh, countless things in your inner life that that could be referring to and so there has to be again just like the parents with the child and the rabbit mm-hmm. spiritual teachers have to be in tune with i mean our spiritual development changes the rate of development is very different from person to person it's much mm-hmm. more varied than our physical development our psychological right. development and you know, spiritual development um is very very different so a spiritual teacher would have to then actually be in tune with where you are mm-hmm. and to give you the, the best pointers that, that that they can but the but the other thing is and this is where science and spirituality can interact profitably science gives us ways to create pointers that tell us where the pointer itself has a limit it says mm-hmm. this point like evolution of natural selection right. It's a good pointer to all sorts of interesting facts about life and reproduction and so forth. Yeah. But it tells us precisely where it stops. For example, you will not see the truth. So it's telling you specific things. Right. And so what we what, that's really powerful because that stops disambiguation, you know, well, right? Or to find the yeah. boundaries of these pointers. You don't get that, that's right. The boundaries of the pointers. Exactly right. And it gets rid of the dogmatism because hmm. The, if you believe the pointer, the pointer itself says, don't believe any, any more than this. <laughs> this is the, the end point of the, of the pointer. And so that's where I think science and spirituality can work. As we work together, as we start to get more scientifically rigorous theories of, of spirituality, what we're not trying to do is desiccate spirituality. Right. As we said, the truth always transcends any scientific description. Yes. There is no theory of everything. Yes. That doesn't mean that we don't do science. It means that we, if we don't want to be dogmatic, if, we, if we're serious about spiritual things, we want to really progress and help others to progress and give them good pointers. Well, the pointers that we had 3,000 years ago may not be the best pointers now. Right. How right. do we evolve new pointers that take us from where we are currently to the next, to the next level? Wow. Well, that's where science and spirituality can, can work. Not again that science is the final word. It, there yes. is no theory of everything in science. And I'm not trying to get rid of spiritual realities. They transcend anything that we can say. Absolutely. Right. But if we don't want to be dogmatic about our pointers, then science is the only game in town. Well, well said. I, you know, and it occurs to me that I guess with every, I guess one of the, the, breakthroughs of this theory is like the perceptions themselves are pointers or are useful fiction somehow and i think this maps nicely to if you just look at the visible light spectrum right we see what like less than five percent of the total light spectrum for instance so we're you know we're tuning out a lot more than we're tuning into per se and it sounds like perception is maybe sort of similar and that we're just tuning into what is relevant to adaptive behavior and tuning out or compressing away maybe a lot of this other capital right. T truth. But this mistaking the pointers for truth, this seems to be almost like a um, existential threat to dealing with pointers, right? It's like you're going to make a representation about reality 
you're, you're, there's always going to be that danger of mistaking the representation for reality. And I, you know, maybe that's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about idolatry and things like that, right? That you can't, the God that can be named is not God, right? The Tao, which we call the Tao is not the Tao. So the, this non-dogmatism right. or this provisional attitude towards all pointers and the understanding that, again, your perception itself is that you're just putting on, I love the headset analogy. And maybe right. is this then related to like Zen cones? You know, they have kind of no answer in a way or like, you know, many of the great questions, their answers, their quote unquote answers are paradoxes. They're just kind of like pointing to the boundary of logic itself perhaps yes um or or artists yeah, I, right I, artists using lies to tell deeper truths like these all these all seem to be related to me um i agree and i think that that in some case like the the zen con where you, in some sense the effect of them is to halt you in your track right you hmm. you you halt and your brain catches fire and and and, and you, you don't know what to do with it and that's the point is all of a sudden, your thoughts fail you, mm. and you go into inner silence. <laughs> and that inner silence, where you let go of all the concepts. Now, this is another step that we should go into, I think, is now you actually confronting the deeper truth. Yes. So there is this deeper truth that transcends any conceptual analysis of it. Right. And so this is now, by the way, I have to be very, very careful. What I'm now saying is not an implication of evolution by natural selection. It's not an implication of any scientific theory. So now I want to be very, very clear. This is Hoffman taking a fallible <laughs> and creative <laughs> jump and saying, what is the nature of reality or beyond because it's not space and time and so forth. And our, our, our scientific theories don't tell us what it is. So this is now Hoffman taking a leap and he's almost surely wrong, but we've got to go there boldly and then try to be precise so that we can. So this is what, this is how we progress. Yes. So I'm proposing that consciousness itself is fundamental, that you are consciousness mm -hmm. and that that is the deep truth that Gödel's incompleteness theorem is pointing to that says the truth transcends any conceptual so I'm, I'm proposing that that you're not separate from that truth. You are one with that truth. Mm -hmm. And that that's uh, it. So I'm proposing that consciousness is fundamental. And mm -hmm. I'm proposing that science then needs to give a mathematical model of consciousness, which of course will only again be a pointer. And it'll never be a theory of everything for consciousness. But mm -hmm. we again have to start and say, let's take consciousness as the mm -hmm. object that we're building a model of and then see the limits of, of our models. And in that case, the Zen koan is doing a very useful thing. In that model, I am consciousness and I am not separate from the infinite truth that transcends any conceptual analysis. I, I am one with that, hmm. but I cannot know it through conceptual analysis directly. I can only know it in a couple of ways. One is the Zen koan which, mm -hmm. which stops me in my tracks and stops all of my thinking. It's meditation, and basically. That, that, and effectively, I know it by being it. Right. I know it not through conceptual analysis. I know it because I am the truth. And I, hmm. I sit there and as I let go of the concepts and just be, hmm. I 
get in touch with an infinite intelligence that is not separate from me. And this, by the way, my own attitude about this as a scientist is, this is where understanding this, this, this spiritual idea can be an incredible boon to science. When scientists realize that, of course, you need to be conceptually clear. You need to know your mathematics. You need to know your, you need to know your stuff. And it has to be rigorous. You have to be hard-nosed. I'm not saying that we need to pull back on any of that stuff. It's got to be really tough. On the other hand, if you're only in concepts all the time, you're missing the deepest intelligence. Uh -huh. And so this going back and forth between hard-nosed analysis and crisp concepts uh -huh. and then complete letting go of thought and going into the unknown, that back and forth right. on this idea is going to be really essential for moving forward in science. And I think the best scientists really do this. They, yes, whether they're aware of it or not, they know their stuff, they know their math, they know the all the facts, and they think hard about them, but then they give it a break. Right. And like Einstein was very, very clear that often in many cases he he it wasn't math, it was some vague feeling, yes. some vague image or something like that. That took him a long time to turn it into concepts right. and then turn it in finally into uh, mathematics. Dim, dim apprehensions. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, there's some great quote about dim apprehensions that we can barely articulate. I think you're trying to pull those down and codify them in words. That that that's that's exactly right. And so that so here I see, as you can see, I'm not saying that science is the cure for you know, is better than spirituality or spirituality is better than science. I'm saying that we have two legs we need to walk on both legs right we need to have the science leg and the spirituality leg to to walk forward yes or, or to use another metaphor we um we need what is consciousness up to right if, if consciousness is fundamental what is consciousness doing and why mm -hmm. and i don't know but girdle's incompleteness theorem suggests one idea that we should take seriously again not dogmatically mm -hmm. Gödel is telling us there's no end to the exploration of mathematical structure. In mm -hmm. principle, there's no end. You 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 can't be omniscient about uh, right. mathematical structure. And if consciousness is what all there is, if consciousness is the reality, then the only thing that mathematical structure is about are the possibilities of consciousness, conscious right. experiences, conscious structures, whatever. So what this what Gödel's incompleteness theorem is telling us then in this under this assumption that consciousness is all there is, is that consciousness in principle could never fully explore itself. Hmm. So maybe that's what consciousness is up to, is the endless exploration of all of its possibilities and possible experiences. Hmm. And part of, that part of that process may then be, well, um, what consciousness does is it says, well, to, to get to know myself, let me try on this VR headset. Let me try three dimensions of space and four right. and, and one dimension of time. And let me put in you know, hundreds of trillions of stars in you know, hundreds of, you know, and trillions of galaxies. And uh, let's put all this in there. And, and I want to really explore this. So I'm going to plunge myself in completely, complete immersion. I'm going mm -hmm. to lose myself. I don't even know what I am. I think I'm this tiny little, Hmm. five foot six foot tall hundred to two hundred pound thing hmm. inside this vast universe 
I'm going to let myself go into that illusion and I'm going to let myself really explore that and believe that and learn the rules of that. And like I burn mm -hmm. my hand in the fire and I learn not to do mm -hmm. that. My brother beats me up and I learn what not to do to my brother. I, you know, I, I steal things and I go to jail and I, okay, I shouldn't, you know, I, I do all this stuff and I'm really learning in this interface. And then I, eventually I wake up and I realize, oh no, I'm not that little thing. That vast universe was just a headset inside of me. <laughs> and I've learned something new about me as consciousness. My consciousness has the capability of creating something that has trillions of stars and galaxies and is 93 billion light years across or, or more. And I can lose myself inside that and I can eventually wake up. That's what I am. I was wow. none of that. And now it's time, you know, death then is the next step. It's time to take off this headset mm -hmm. and move on to the next one. And I can't, wow. you know, for me, you know, this headset is pretty limited. Three dimensions of space. I want to be able to imagine in 20 dimensions of space or 100 dimensions of space. <laughs> Why not? So, so, so you can see this. It's an from this point of view. And again, I'm not saying I'm right, yeah. but I, I want to put it out there with as much energy and pizzazz yes. as possible to, to make it interesting. To say this is worth exploring, not dogmatically, but exploring rigorously. See where it leads, and then we'll try to get the next better idea. Right. No. Excellently said. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I'm reminded that uh, there's a quote, wisdom is silent. You know, you can't, we're trying to put all these words to it, but ultimately it can only be experienced, right? And in, in meditation or something equivalent, perhaps. All right, okay. Yeah, you're thinking of Rumi maybe, right? Rumi is it Rumi? That, yeah. The language of God is silence, all else is poor translation. Ah, beautiful. And that's really, that's really, quite nice in some, some sense 
It's when you have that inner silence and you let go of your concepts. In, in some sense, you don't know the truth conceptually, but you know it by being it. Yeah, and, and I it's, think that Rumi was right about that. And it speaks to you as a, I mean, uh, someone who's had an on and off meditation practice. I've had it for long periods of time and off periods of time. It does speak to you, right? It, it's creatively inspirational when you go into that place. So, all right, yeah. to try to. <laughs> stay in pragmatic reality whatever that means here are we then awakening it seems to me it's, it's fascinating that we're moving into this digital age and somehow these tools we've developed now give us the lexicon to describe our own cognitive wherewithal our cognitive architecture it seems to me that perhaps software architecture and psychology have more in common than we've ever realized perhaps. And I think your theory takes that to probably its bleeding edge. Um, and I'm reminded what you're describing there with consciousness exploring itself, then I guess we're somehow if everything is unconscious, and then we are somehow that consciousness or the universe engaged in self reflection. And somehow that is a learning, or maybe the learning process, I, I'm not sure. I'll try to read because this ties into some other very interesting areas like Ian McGilchrist's book, Master and His Emissary, where he describes sort of left and right hemisphere, what they're specialized for. I think this goes into, you know, Peterson talks often about order and chaos. We have, you know, mm -hmm. the Taoist, yin and yang, all of these things. So there's an excerpt here from your book I'd like to read. You wrote, actually, the evidence as we see it favors the view that the minor hemisphere is very conscious indeed. And further, that both the separated left and right hemispheres may be conscious simultaneously in different and even conflicting mental experiences that run along in parallel. Two persons with distinct likes and dislikes appear to reside and sometimes quarrel side by side inside one skull. Okay. And then the, the McGilchrist-Peterson thing, like there's this theory that perhaps the I guess the left hemisphere is specialized for reductionalism, classification, all of these things. I hope I have this right. The right hemisphere is more holistic, more yin, more open, more feminine. The right would be more masculine. Um, it seems to me like there something about this polarity between these two things is almost what creates reality. And the Buddhists had this concept of codependent origination or that all everything in the realm of forms and perception, like it arises from, I guess, this, this polarity. Is that, um, is that what we're saying here that I guess everything that we're perceived, like we can't get something in its own isolated, non-interdependent essence that we're always kind of putting a frame around things and then establishing a, the polarity itself within that frame is the perception. Is that, a way to put it perhaps well I, I like that idea but there's a lot to say about it so mm -hmm. under the idea that consciousness so i'm going to talk so ian mcgillchrist is a physicalist so mm -hmm. when he's talking about it for example he's, he's taking a physicalist point of view yes. on this. so we, we could talk about his stuff from from just a physicalist framework and and if you want to we, we can you know let go of the consciousness as fundamental stuff and just talk about like as a cognitive neuroscientist, what I would have to say about his stuff. No, or sorry, I, sh I should it. tell you, 
where I'd like to go with this is toward, I'm staying sure. on track with your book here, toward the neural correlates of consciousness. Oh, um, toward the neural correlates. Yes. Sure. So, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. Uh, sure. The neural correlates. So now I'll just talk as a cognitive neuroscientist and not, not about this, the, the deeper idea of consciousness is fundamental, but we could go there later if you want. There, my colleagues are doing wonderful work on the neural correlates of consciousness, right? This is, this has been going on now for, for, for decades. Um, and we've, we have dozens, perhaps hundreds of neural correlates of consciousness that are, that are very, very um, well-documented, great data. For example, um, area V4 of visual cortex, you have one on the left hemisphere and one on the right hemisphere. And if you take a magnet, uh, a transcranial magnetic stimulation device and touch it to the right part of your skull, just near that area V4 and put it in inhibit mode while you're sitting there. All of a sudden, you'll see all the color drain out of the right visual field. And then when you turn the magnet off, you feel the color, you see the color coming back in. Wow. And if you do it to the right hemisphere, then you, all the color drains, drains out of the left hemisphere, left visual field. And when you turn it off, all the color comes flowing back into the left visual field. Wow. So, so we can toggle your conscious experience by fooling with specific parts of your brain. All right. So most people would say, there you have it. That proves that the brain mm -hmm. really does exist. All my stuff about evolution by natural selection, we don't see the truth, is clearly false. The brain is there and the brain activity is causing the change in the color experience. So mm -hmm. you know, open and shut case against the idea that we don't see the truth. Well, and my attitude, my answer is these real correlates of consciousness are wonderful. The, the people who are, who are finding them are, are, are brilliant, and I've worked on them some myself. And they don't entail that brains even exist when they're not perceived. Hmm. I, I, I argue that that neurons do not exist when they're not perceived. Hmm. When you look inside of a skull, you will see brains and neurons. Just like if I have a virtual reality headset on, mm -hmm. I look over and I see a red Porsche in Grand Theft Auto. When I look, I've created that red Porsche. Mm -hmm. um, when I look back, I, I look to the left and I see a white, oh, you know, a, a white Camaro or something like that. I create the white Camaro when I look and then I delete it when I look away. Mm -hmm. So that's when I, when I say space time is just a, a, a data structure and, and objects or icons, we're creating those icons on the fly. Mm -hmm. So neurons are icons that we create when we look inside skulls and so are our brains. So, so you, you might say, well, but then how do you explain why when I, you know, with these neural cordless conscious, I, I inhibit V4 and the color goes away. Surely that, that proves that um, it caused it because, I, you know, I'm toggling here and I'm toggling the experience over there. Right. It, 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 it's insane. causative. Yeah. Well, it, it looked like it's, it's causative. Yeah. And, and, but the, if you just think about the, just think a little bit about what you're doing in a, in a, in a virtual reality game, right? So I'm playing Grand Theft Auto and I've, I've got a steering wheel. Mm -hmm. I could say, well, I, I have a steering wheel and this, so I'm seeing the steering wheel in VR, right? Mm -hmm. so maybe I shouldn't use the steering wheel because you, you might also have a, a literal one. But imagine that you don't have a literal steering wheel, that you just yeah. have a virtual reality steering wheel, okay? And, and you have virtual hands that you see and you're yeah. carrying this virtual reality steering wheel. I mean, you, you could certainly do that. Mm -hmm. Many games do have a physical one in front of you, but yeah. I'm not thinking about those games. Think about one where you, you only see the steering wheel in VR and you grab it with your virtual hands. Mm -hmm. In that case, you could say, look, 
I turn this steering wheel to the left and my car goes left. I turn the steering wheel to the right, my car goes right. Clearly, there's a causal relationship between the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. The, the, the steering wheel really exists and it caused my car, the, the turning of the steering wheel caused my car to turn left. Clear as day. No, the steering wheel only exists when you look. If I turn my headset this way, there is no steering wheel. Right. <laughs> there, there literally is no steering wheel. So, so once you realize that all, all the things that we think are you know, knock down, drag out proofs that you know that yeah. the brain exists and tells the power, you realize no, they're trivially shown to be. It's just trivial that they're wrong. Right. But they have a deep grip on our imagination. Mm. But so I think the next generation that spends a lot of time in the metaverse will just get this. My, my generation doesn't get it. We didn't right. grow up in the metaverse. The next generation. They're, when they take off their heads, they're going to go, it's a no-brainer that what I'm seeing is probably not the truth, too. It's just yeah. a no-brainer. Right. That so makes a lot of sense. Technology That's interesting. Yeah, the, the, the technological realities we inhabit, they sort of retool our ability to talk about conscious experience right. itself, which is really interesting. Yeah, we're upgrading um, to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just level up. That makes sense. That's right. We're leveling up. Um Okay, so I want to read, there's so many things I could talk about here, but I'm going to try to stay on track. I'll read another excerpt from your book here. This is on neural correlates of consciousness or NCCs, as we abbreviate them. You wrote, the path from correlation to causation, to be sure, is fraught with pitfalls. If a crowd forms at a train platform, then often a train soon arrives. But crowds don't impel trains to roll in. Something else, a train schedule, creates the correlation between crowds and trains. So to tie this, you know, this show is called The What Is Money Show. We talk a lot about economics and whatnot. But the train Mm -hmm. schedule, a calendar, money, I think these are all forms of social technology, which are driving coordinated action among conscious agents and there's something really interesting here that i'd like to pick your brain about in that the consensus itself seems to neither be objective nor subjective right there's a fitness between these agents and the 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 coordinating mechanism whether it be a train schedule or calendar and is that um does this mean that culture and it's artifacts and artifacts. I'm including the train schedule, the calendar and money. Is this kind of like a distributed database of these individual biological interfaces? So are we then using these useful fictions to construct kind of a collective mind or collective perception? And what does that say? If that's at all accurate, what does that say about the construction of our own perceptions? Are, are our own perceptions, perhaps these, um, uh, consensus patterns of either a schedule or a train. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> train schedule, a calendar or money. Is there a consensus mechanism to consciousness itself and that we see consensus effectively extending consciousness into the larger collective landscape? I hope that made sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I could take this in either deflationary or, or inflationary direction. So- <laughs> Deflationary first, which is to, you could say, look, this is just simply, you know, we, we can use evolutionary game theory, 
to show how certain kinds of cooperation or conflict emerge when you have certain kinds of um, fitness payoffs involved and, and certain kinds of goals and, and so forth. You can get really interesting. So, so I, you know, one way to take this is say, look, um, nothing really special here. We have the mathematics of evolutionary game theory. We can look at how various strategies interact, mm -hmm. and you can get cooperation or 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 uncooperation. You can get mm -hmm. competition um, in various situations. So we can set up different games, and we can get consensus building, or we can get competition and and different strategies. So so it's really so this is sort of a deflationary thing. Is but by the way, I'm not saying it's not good. It's 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 the best we've got right now. It's it's evolutionary game theory. And we can mm -hmm. literally, it's the best tools we have for understanding economic cooperation and competition. There are no better tools than this kind of game theoretic approach. And you know, the tools like this also explain why when someone yells fire in a crowded theater, hmm. most people get trampled to death when right. most people didn't have to get trampled to death. So so we, we can actually use these things to see where consensus and cooperation happen and where we can predict that it won't happen. So it's very, very, so that's a, a beautiful field. And, and it's, you know, I recommend people study it because it's, it's, it's incredible. Do you have a certain so, recommended book on that topic, by the way, just evolutionary? Oh, um, sure. Um, if you're, if you want to really be serious and, and understand it, but in the, the least painful way, yes. Um, <laughs> There's a book called Evolutionary Games by um, Novak, Novak, uh, N-O-W-A-K. I think it's called okay. Evolutionary Games. Um, if I can check and make sure that that's uh, you know with the book right in front of me, but that uh, that's the book that that I used back in 28 2008 or 2010 or something like that. Wonderful. I think okay. it had just come out, and and so you know, hats off to Novak and it's his book Evolutionary Games because my students and I. We're not experts in this field, and we could use his book to mm. boot ourselves up and start to do fun work. Yeah. So that's that's the book I would recommend. If you want a, an even more informal book that sort of gives you the ideas, I, I highly recommend um, Stephen Pinker's How the Mind Works. Okay. Yeah. So a wonderful book, and also um, well, any book that Pinker has written, but you know, The Better Angels of Our Nature. Mm -hmm. These these books also play with these ideas, and and, and Pinker is is an exceptional, um, brilliant man on his own. I mean, he's he's, mm -hmm. he's a brilliant and original contributor, but he's also uh, the exception who is a wonderful expositor of, of mm -hmm. the ideas. So mm -hmm. makes original contributions and brilliant ex exposition of. So any book by Pinker in this area, I would recommend. Now, there's a, a more inflationary way of thinking about your question, which is let's take consciousness as fundamental. And that's what is consciousness up to on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And and what if consciousness is fundamentally cooperative? Hmm. What if consciousness itself um, isn't broken up? Maybe there's this one deep consciousness, one consciousness, right? And and it's timeless. Could we show? mathematically, that any projection, any perspective on that consciousness that the consciousness takes of itself would induce time as an mm -hmm. artifact of the projection and induce the illusion of limited resources and competition for limited resources as 
that as the uh, sort of a, an, an artifactual view of a more fundamental process that's <clears throat> that's not competitive is completely cooperative and there's no limited resources <clears throat> and that's where i'm headed i'm very interested to come up with a model of consciousness where there's there's only there's no mm. limited resources there's only cooperation it's it's trivial by the way to show that if you have a model of consciousness where there is no entropic time so entropy mm -hmm. is not increasing mm -hmm. so a markovian model of consciousness entropy is not increasing there is some constant entropy but it's not increasing mm -hmm. Any projection of that dynamics by conditional probability, it's a, a trivial theorem that the projection will lead to an arrow of time. It will lead to an increase hmm. in entropic time. So even though the fundamental system has no entropic time, any view of it, any projection oh. of it, will have entropic time. And if so, so all of a sudden you Time was not a limited resource before. Right now, time is a limited resource. What other limited resources are there? Perhaps all the nomad. Well, well, it all comes down to time. Ultimately, in economics, it's all about it, time. It really is. And so, once you see that that is that that limited resource could be an artifact of projection from a deeper reality in which there is no limited resource, then see what's beautiful about this is suppose then we get. A mathematically precise theory of consciousness beyond space-time. Yeah. It's non-entropic time. There's no limited resources. Can we show a particular projection in which we get back evolution by natural selection as the view that occurs from a particular projection? So we could show that evolution mm -hmm. by natural selection is a special case of a much deeper theory. That mm -hmm. would be, for me as a scientist, just incredibly beautiful because it wow. shows how important evolution by natural selection is within our interface. It's a description mm -hmm. of what's going on in our interface, but it's not true deeper. Mm -hmm. That description is an artifact of a projection of something deeper. So that's, I think, a wonderful direction for, for scientists to pursue. And that's how we're going to try to get also, I think, our, our current physics. You know, quantum field theory and Einstein's theory of gravity have to be just interface theories. Is there a deeper theory of consciousness that not only gives rise to evolution but natural selection, but also gives rise to quantum field theory and gravity as a, again an artifact of projection? Wow. That's where we need to go. Wow, that is very exciting. Um, this oneness, this one consciousness, or uh, you know maybe God is one of the stand-in words, one of the pointer words we use here. Um, that seems to be intuited in a lot of wisdom traditions too, right? That there is some unifying oneness to all of this somehow. So maybe that, that could be a gateway to that. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's a really important point, Robert, because um, the theory of consciousness that I have, been working with my, again, with my many colleagues that I mentioned, I would just say that we don't have a theory of the one consciousness. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't think I can. Right. I, I think that you know it, it's not just that I'm not smart enough. I, I'm Transcends theoretizing. I think that there's a principle. Yeah. And so what we're doing is instead we're saying let's get models of these finite con conscious agents we call them and interact and we can show them when they interact they actually combine and create new conscious agents mm -hmm. and, and and we can then begin to sort of climb our way up. Okay, when these 
create new agents, mm. where we're getting more mm. more complicated agents, we can start to climb our way up and go, okay, well, we're getting hints of what, you know, this one might be, because it's no less complicated than what, what we've done. Right. But, but but what's really interesting is that there, it turns out the notion of infinity is not just one notion. It right. turns out there's something called Cantor hierarchy. Those infinite, infinite infinities. Number of infinities. Yeah. Right. right. So there's, and each infinity is infinitely bigger than the infinity precluding before it. Yeah. And so as, as I start to look at the, how consciousnesses interact and the new, I realized that, okay, I'm going up this, I'll have to go up this counter hierarchy and, and you can't get to the top. So, mm -hmm. so what we have is a theory of consciousness, which in its very structure is telling you, you'll never get there. Mm -hmm which is really interesting. It will always, so that's, I love a theory that that's always saying, look, it's really good what you've got, but don't be deceived. Yeah. You have infinitely more to go. Yes. So, so that, and that's, that's what I think is good science. You, you, you take your, your math and logic very, very seriously, you learn as much as you can from it. And it comes back and tells you, you're still just a baby. You're, it's just a baby step. Right. There are many, right. many more steps ahead. So, so again, yeah, I'm reminded. Yeah. I, I listened. <laughs> Thank you. I, I listened to your episode with Tim Ferriss and the the quote you gave at the end from Isaac Newton, where he was talking about the end of his life. He felt like he was still on the just a child playing with pebbles on the shore on the ocean of truth, something like that. Um, it's kind of it's interesting. It's right. sort of paradoxical in that it seems very futile that we engage in any of this, but somehow simultaneously very fulfilling and meaningful to try and pursue these revelations i guess i i, I agree robert I, I think one thing is very very clear nothing that you build or buy or acquire you can take you can't take any of it with you so right. so uh, i build a, a empire state building i i um build a reputation I have a house. I have all these. You're walking away from all this stuff. Mm -hmm. No question about it. Everything that we acquire, you're walking away from it. Hand, no question about it. It's a game. Yeah. If you're in a virtual reality game and you're and you get lost in the game, and it's easy to get lost in the game. You're just mm -hmm. a little player inside this big Grand Theft Auto, and you mm -hmm. and you get all emotional about it, and you're trying to beat the other. And you, you yeah. can lose yourself in the game. You realize that at the end of the day, I'm going to take my headset off. And none of that mattered. It was just a game. The game was there for me to learn something. It was, it was, uh, it was an exploration of possibilities. Right. So that's what this is. For, you know, way I look at it. If you want a house, go get it. You know, if you want the, you know, to buy the Empire State Building, go do it, knowing full well that yourself, your identity, can't be that. It, you're yeah. not going to take any of it with you. So this is not about what you get. It's about who you are and what you learn. Right. Um, who you are and, and what you learn. And when you take the headstone off, you're a different person. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. And this aligns a lot with my, my view on the world where yeah, everyone should pursue their wants to their fullest expression um, with the limiting principle of other people's person and property, right? Like go and get whatever you want so long as you don't steal or hurt others, basically, which is pretty basic morality. Um, on that topic, you know, I wanted to bring up this book, Leela. It's written by author Robert Persig. His real famous book was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Um, he wrote the book Leela about oh, okay. 
15 years later. And, you know, Zen was a huge hit, probably the number one, one of the number one philosophy books of the 20th century, I think, in terms of cells. The second book, almost no one's read or even heard of, which is interesting. But yes, I see a lot of parallels. I've done a long form series on this book with another guy. And we've, so I've read it two or three times. It's very, very interesting. But the theory of conscious realism that you're touching on in your book that is sort of, and correct me wherever I'm wrong here, consciousness is not emerging from physical reality. Consciousness is the ground stuff, right? Physical reality is, again, space and time are like data structures in this uh, reality of consciousness, if you will. One point in the book, Leela, and I'll, I would, I hope I can <laughs> entice you enough to read it at some point. I think you'd really like it. But one point that he makes sure. is you can take the entire scientific corpus and you could replace A causes B with B values precondition A. So he's taking a similar, I mean, the book is very wide ranging, but he's approaching, he's making, his thesis is that reality is moral quality or value or excellence, that it's all about conscious choice, right? Even at the inorganic layers of reality, there are conscious choices being made that manifest in these patterns that we call inorganic reality. So it's all a marketplace, really. It's which is also interesting in that if you look at economics, we have this theory very strongly for humans, right? That we're conscious actors making decisions in a marketplace and there's certain emergent phenomenon that we can't predict, right? It's infinitely complex. But perhaps in our anthropomorphic arrogance, per, perhaps we, we don't extend that to the rest of reality, right? Animals don't make choices. They have instincts. Inorganic reality follows laws. It doesn't make choices. It follows laws. So we make choices, but everything else follows these laws according to the frames we've put on them. And I'm reminded here, so his, first of all, saying that, I mean, and your book as well, it's a Copernican-like revolution, right? You're like, I thought I was the center of the universe. Now I see this is the center of the universe. And it reminds me of that. You bring up Wittenstein's question in the book where they're arguing about, if you know, what would the earth, what would it look like? I'm sorry, what would it have looked like if the earth turned on its axis, right? Just by asking this simple question of if the earth was turning on its axis, what would that look like? And then we get this brand new theory that lets us reinterpret all, you know, all the sunrises and all the sunsets across history, all of a sudden look completely different to us just by this perspective exactly. shift. Um, so I would love to hear, we, we talked about, I think we're get, butting up against morality here, right? We say, let's let everyone do what they want. There has to be some bound on that. Otherwise we're justifying evil in a way. How do you fit good and evil and morality into this framework of yours? And also cause and effect and so forth. Um, yes. Well, so yes. A lot, a lot of things up there. Uh, one is that first, the distinction that we make between living and non-living things, mm. a rock isn't living, but a plant is. That's an artifact of our interface. Mm -hmm. It's not a principal distinction. Similarly, the distinction we make between conscious and unconscious entities is an artifact of our interface. Right now, I am 
looking at you on a Zoom screen. There are certain pixels on my screen that are giving me insight that, that I call the you know, Robert's face mm -hmm. and are giving me insight into your, your you know, what you're thinking, whether mm -hmm. you agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. I'm getting an insight into your consciousness through those pixels. Mm -hmm. Those pixels are not conscious. I also see pixels of things that I call a, you know, a drape or a door or a wall. Mm -hmm. And, and th those pixels are the same as the kinds of pixels that, are, that I see for your face. The mm -hmm. distinction between conscious and unconscious pixels or living and or non-living pixels is not fundamental. It's, it's just that certain pixels are giving me a portal into your conscious experiences. Mm -hmm. And other, other the ones that I call your face, and other pixels are not, but the, the pixels themselves are just pixels. And so mm -hmm. space and time are just a data structure, like the zoom screen is a data mm -hmm. structure and the pixels on the zoom screen. So, and of, of any data structure, any interface is dumbing things down and mm -hmm. making, you know, getting rid of distinctions. And so, so the distinction, we, we think of ourselves as the center of the universe, right? We're the smartest thing on the, on the block, you know, we're, well, no and we're not the most conscious thing and mm -hmm. rocks you know, the, in, in some sense we're we're fooled we're we're we're, we're taken in by our interface this is before mm -hmm. we wake up when you wake up and realize oh this is just a head so it's, it's like a guy that's involved in the vr game completely immersed and angry and really taking the whole thing quite seriously and doesn't realize wait 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 i, I i've I, I, this is just an interface mm -hmm. And, and once you realize that, then, then the distinction between living and non-living, conscious and unconscious, is not fundamental. And then the question comes up, okay, what are we here to do and why? And issues of morality come up as you... As yes. you. And, and now I'll you know, bring this other hypothesis that there is just one consciousness. And it's just exploring all of its possibilities, all in right. which case... The distinction between Robert and Don is, is again, an artifact of our interface. <laughs> right. And the, the conversation we're having right now, and then the, any per person who listen to this, this is all the same consciousness through different projections learning from itself. Right. So there's nothing special about this particular icon on the interface or the Robert icon. <laughs> there's nothing special about those icons. These are just, this is just consciousness playing with itself learning by this interaction and and so and and what's really interesting of course we you know we see consciousness doing some weird thing you know murdering itself mm -hmm. in that point of view right mm -hmm. doing but eventually everybody just takes their headset off so i'm I, by the way I, i'm not at all advocating hurting sure. anybody or any creature i'm not advocating I'm saying that there's this deeper view mm -hmm. that that ultimately what consciousness is here to do is to learn that I and Robert aren't different. Mm -hmm. When I really understand that we're not separate, that is love. Mm -hmm. When I realize that I'm not separate from the tomato, that I just have less insight to the consciousness that the tomato is an icon. So I'm getting this tomato icon but there's this very rich consciousness behind which happens to be me. Mm -hmm. So, I, so what, what really comes out of this is the deepest morality. So the, the morality that, that realizes that I see myself in a rock. I see myself in a tomato. I see myself in another person. Mm -hmm. I am, there is no division. I, I am 
that that's what love is now mm. while i'm waking up i may do things like murder and and steal and so mm. forth before because i'm still lost in the game i'm still trying to you know in grand mm. theft Auto, i'm still trying to beat the guy with the camera i'm really t- taking it seriously i'm all heated up and so forth right. but when i wake up i realize oh it was just a game even though it was it was nasty what i did ultimately there was no real harm right <laughs> Right. Because the other guy's going to take his headset off too, and it, and it turns out we're both the same. So morality is real. Yeah. Don't hurt. But what you're really learning when you do hurt people is ultimately you're hurting yourself. Right. Yes. So so you can see there's this deeper perspective that comes when you go with the the, the spiritual or, or or my scientific realist you know conscious realist um, um, theory of, of the spiritual realm, which again yeah. is not the final word. It's just a theory yeah no it's a great way to look at it that the less we get lost in that game the better the world we create right like to for you and i to engage in this conversation i need to assume that you are a conscious agent basically right that you have things that i can learn and hopefully i have some things like there's a dialogical process that can only emerge if we if I don't just take you as some icon in my game, right? That there's a there's a deeper thing that we're both animated by or animated for, I'm not sure. Is that kind of what, you know, I, I, I lean, I go to the Bible a lot. I know it's not the only wisdom tradition on this, but it talks about this, right? Like honor the sovereignty of the individual, right? Love thy neighbor, love, you know, putting love, first and as as you're saying in this framework love is that unifying force um it's converging even opposites and it seems like me and i don't know where perhaps christianity is a moral chronicle of agape specifically you know i know love there's a lot of different kinds of love i think it's really focused on agape that's just a comment. My question would be, what is the role of mythology in our own? And you could, you could put in this, the other useful fictions like money, like nation states, human rights, all these imaginary structures that we create to scale our cooperation and to scale our perceptions. You know, so the market is a, a way of scaling our perceptions in a way. What is the role of those structures? Um, what am I trying to say here? We, they, we have to create them. We know they're not real, but they help us get on better. So what is the role of these mythological structures in consciousness itself, I guess? Are we trying to scale consciousness into these structures? Like, what's going on? Well, again, I think that you, from the point of view that consciousness is fundamental, consciousness is probably just learning about itself knowing the, the old oracle of delphi thing know thyself it's it's mm. and the process of knowing itself um is endless and yeah. what we're doing inside space and time all the games we play the, the things we buy the, the competitions we do this is all consciousness doing these things to explore itself but but then i think the vr headset metaphor is really helpful here 
and it's it's a way to understand what the spiritual traditions including including Christian Jesus and Christianity have, have been saying to us so I'll put it just in the VR metaphor first and then say how I think it relates to these spiritual mm -hmm. traditions like like Christianity which I was raised in my dad was a, a minister mm -hmm. a, a Christian fundamentalist minister mm -hmm. but, but in the VR thing right someone who gets lost in the game what you would tell them is wait you know Joe Joe you're, you're, you're lost in the game just look everything that you try to acquire in the game when you take your headset off you're not going to have it anymore right relaxed <laughs> play the and, and also Joe you know sort of wake up and realize that you're not this little tiny thing and you know, the avatar is not you the avatar in the game that you see that's not you that's just an avatar in the game you're not someone in the game you're in fact outside the game you're mm. you're a consciousness and the, the game is inside your consciousness mm. and frankly in everyday life this is a, a spiritual practice just walk try walking through life saying this is a headset so forget spirituality just just think take the vr metaphor right. this is a headset i'm playing a game can i feel can i feel what it was like to imagine that everything that i'm seeing is this is just all a headset and i'm not this body that i see that i'm not this avatar this is just an avatar Mm -hmm. So everything, and, and it doesn't even exist when I don't perceive it. So if I don't see my hands, they don't exist. Mm -hmm. so, so, and if I don't see my avatar hands in the, in the VR thing, they don't exist because they, I only create them when I look. Trying to actually spend some time in your everyday life where like you walk through, you know, you're walking down the sidewalk. Okay. Just imagine this is just a VR game. This is just an avatar. It's not me. Mm -hmm. I'm outside the game. That's the spiritual mindset that's what mm. the, all the spiritual traditions are trying to get you to do mm. because you're no longer a tiny thing inside the game you realize you're the thing that's seeing the game right and you, you step out of it so that so so now jesus points to that when he says um if anyone would come after me let him deny himself well what what is the self that he's denying? it, it, it jesus wouldn't tell you to deny something that's true yeah he's telling you to deny a fiction what is the fiction that you are your avatar huh. so jesus is saying deny when he's saying you deny yourself he's saying don't think that you're the avatar and that you that if you think you're the avatar then you are competing with joe to get that camaro in, in the right in the bird you are your your whole sense of yourself is how how much am i better than the other players it's a comparative thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how much do i how much have i gotten so if so when jesus says deny yourself he's basically saying wake up you're not the avatar as soon as long as you think you're the avatar then you're comparing yourself you're competing with other people and you're you know, I'm, I'm better than or worse than mm -hmm. this other person because you're lost in the game but as, mm -hmm. as soon as you deny yourself which is basically saying, oh, I'm not in the game. I'm not the avatar in the game. I'm outside the game. Mm -hmm. And everything that, that I could possibly do in the game is going to disappear when I take the headset off. So that's why Jesus said, you know, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven when mm -hmm. you're attached to all these things. So, so it doesn't matter if, if you have the riches, if you're not attached, it's not a problem. But, but the, if you're attached to your avatar, right. then you will be attached to the riches. That's part right. of that's that the attachments come together. So if you're attached to the riches, then it's going to be difficult. The kingdom of heaven, what is that? The kingdom of heaven is realizing I'm outside the headset. That's the kingdom right. of heaven. Wow. I'm not something in 
I'm the consciousness outside the headset. Yes. That's the kingdom of heaven. So this does really well, comport well with, with Christianity and I would say uh, the other spiritual traditions once you get past the terminological differences. Yes, yes, yeah, well, great point, Sarah. And that, <clears throat> it's fascinating to me too that spiritual revelation that you are not the avatar, you're not the player in the game, that you're outside of the game, it also makes you resistant to worldly coercion. Right. I'm just reminded here of, um, you know, Solzhenitsyn and Viktor Frankl, they wrote about experiences in, in gulags and concentration camps. They said those that had really deep spiritual convictions were resistant to all of the things going on outside them, whereas those with less spiritual anchoring were more perturbed. Right. They're more caught up in the game, I guess, lost in the game, as we might say. And maybe this points yes. to the value of stoicism to non-attachment to your possessions, right? The, even if you're rich, stoics are fine, like be as rich as you want, but also engage in this practice of negative visualization and imagine that you lose it all tomorrow and try to have equanimity between both states. Um, that's right. I, I think that that's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is this state where you're not you're not attached to all these things. Yes. If you if you if you if your sense of identity is all these things that I have, you know, you know, I'm better than you. I'm you know I'm I'm smarter than you. I'm mm -hmm. faster than you. Whatever it might be. So I so I'm you know, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm haughty in spirit. Yes. Right. 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 Then right. I'm not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. So if I'm poor in spirit versus haughty in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is where I realize there's no reason to compete with Robert because I am Robert. And both right. Robert and I are outside of the game and we're learning from each other. So, so, so now you've entered the kingdom of heaven, you're poor in spirit. I'm not better than Robert and I don't need to be, and I'm not worse than Robert. Robert yeah. has certain ta talents that I don't have and, and vice versa, but those are right. just talents in the game. So that's this. So you can take what Jesus said and, in, 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 and, take it into this VR metaphor and then begin to understand what he was really pointing to. And it's really, really hard. I mean, Jesus didn't have the advantage of all these nice metaphors that we've got to know right, right. now. Right. I think the virtual reality is such a help to understand what Jesus and the spiritual traditions are saying. Yeah. And, and this once again points to where I think the science and spirituality interaction can really, really be a help. Mm -hmm. but frankly, I didn't really understand what Jesus was saying until I got the VR metaphor. Right. I, even though I was raised in, and and I understand because probably most of the people who were teaching it didn't understand. We, 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 Jesus was Jesus was there. He was giving us all these pointers. Yes. But we're the three month olds. We don't understand. We we're not right. we're not fifteen months old where we can take the pointer and really understand it. Right. But maybe with the VR metaphor and so forth it's a it's an, a pointer that we can begin to use and say oh now i get it yes so that's that's why i'm hoping it'll go science and spirituality very interesting so i'll well, i know we're coming up on time here so i'll try to wrap it up that in meditation it seems like one of the recurrent practices is to try and look at what is looking right there's kind of this meta step outside yourself we're always trying to look there's an observer where we all have the internal observer, but we're always trying to look at what is actually engaging in observation, this constant stepping back, I guess, into maybe towards that one consciousness we described earlier. But, and this is, I, I like that line of thinking to relate it to money, actually, in that 
money is something we're looking through. It is similarly a perceptual apparatus, right? We use price signals to coordinate market forces. Market forces dominate the world, really. But the idea of tainting that perceptual apparatus or distorting that lens through which we look through creates really uh, disastrous effects on the world. This is the corruption of money, which a, a lot of uh, my work goes into. It's sort of akin to attacking language itself, where if you just attack the word, right? If we're talking about the Christian sense, the logos, we attack the logos, mm -hmm. that it mm -hmm. inhibits our ability to adapt, I guess, right? We can't, the, the, the very tool we're using for adaptive action, now we don't have consensus on the meaning of that word or, mm -hmm. or that price signal, whatever it may be. And so we're thrown into disarray. What is it about this? Is, is, is that the, the through line here that these theories, these perceptual apparatuses, these frames, we need to work towards um, consensus on their integrity to get on better in this world, to realize that it's a game perhaps, or um, I'm just trying to, so when we attack language or money, the world goes to hell in a handbasket is the punchline. Right, right. Why is that? And how does that fit into your framework and how should we evaluate, uh, I guess, language and money and, and their integrity in this world? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, Capitalism versus communism. Hmm. Communism sounds great. From everyone according to their abilities to, to everyone according to their according needs. To their needs. Yeah. So it, it sounds wonderful. I mean, it, wonderful we could live that way. You know, I'm gonna help you. You you I love you. You're gonna do I'm gonna do whatever I can for you. You're gonna do whatever you can for me, and we're gonna share and share alike. Well, it doesn't work. Well, the history of communism has been a spectacular failure, and, and it, it, we've seen that that doesn't work. Capitalism seems dirty and grubby. Uh, you know, it's competition, nature red and tooth and claw kind of thing. It's, mm -hmm. But it works, right? And we have the higher, you, you get the higher standard, the highest standard of living when you have capitalism with the right, you know, guardrails. Yeah, that's what you need the Leviathan, you need the government to, you know, keep greed within bounds and play you know rules for the game so you, yeah. you, we have to do that but given those rules and, and, and enforcement of those rules then we we get what we find here in the u.s and western democracies it's it's actually an incredibly powerful wealth generator and, and mm -hmm. people's lives are so what's what what gives here well my attitude is that it may be the same thing as before where at the deeper level of consciousness we're all one and it's all cooperative but any projection gives rise mm. to the illusion of time the mm. illusion of limited resources and the illusion of separateness mm. and so while consciousness subjects itself to the illusion and plays according to the rules of the illusion you better be a capitalist because that's the only way that you're going to have mm. uh, you know things get done we would we might like to be communists but to do that you're gonna have to have a complete change of heart you're gonna actually have to not see joe as separate from me but joe as me so as long as joe is separate from me you better be a capitalist as long when joe is me and if i'm doing if i'm being selfish against joe i'm being selfish against myself and i know it then communism will work 
you know, then communism works. So, so that's sort of my attitude about it. So I'm a capitalist right now because everybody I know is still <laughs> lost in the game. So capitalism is the right is the right thing. If humanity, consciousness as humanity, goes through a shift where the vast majority of us wake up mm -hmm. and realize, oh, this is just a headset. And Robert's not separate from me. Then, and when we really believe it, then mm -hmm. and only then, can we shift? We could then shift to communism and it would work mm -hmm. because I wouldn't secretly being, I wouldn't be competing against Robert. The reason why communism doesn't work is because we're still competing. It doesn't scale, right? Because, well, you are yeah. a communist though, probably in your family, right? Like I'm a communist in my family. I don't charge my daughter for breakfast and, you know, I give the shirt right. off my back right. for my family. But when you scale it up to the world economy, I'm very much a capitalist. Yeah, exactly right. And, and it's really the sense of you and I are separate. We're distinct. We're not the yes. same. That is, that's the fundamental illusion. Right. The illusion is that I am my avatar, my body. Yes. You are your avatar, the body. So we have the separateness. And then because I'm identified with my body, I then, and, and by the way, because that identification is illusory. Yes. And I don't, I don't feel, uh, I feel incomplete because it's actually false. I'm not this body. Mm. And I, now I need to actually do something to make up for the fact that I feel inadequate. So I need mm -hmm. to get a bigger house than you. I need to get, mm -hmm. so if you can see the motivations come because I've, it all comes from the false belief that I am this avatar and you are your avatar and you're separate right. from me. That leads to the feeling of incompleteness that makes me have to have all this stuff. Not, oh. I, I don't need to have all this stuff. I, I, and, and my that's... needs are very, very simple. Yes, yes, right? yes. Yeah, your actual needs are very simple. And that that illusion of separateness inside of a, a integrated nuclear family is diminished right like you you and your daughter and your wife and your family like you're all kind of one unit so therefore you're much more you, you have a tendency to behave more like a communist inside of your family because the illusion of separateness is diminished but on the world stage it's very obvious that we're all well i guess we are more separate on the world stage too so there is this kind of gradient we have to act across that's right. But maybe consciousness sets this things up with the nuclear family so that at least within the nuclear family, you get a hint that the idea of separateness mm. isn't fundamental. And then right. it's, 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 it's sort of conscience leaving itself some breadcrumbs saying that there's something deeper here. Yes. Right. Look what you're doing in your family. This is really true more generally. It's not just you and your nation state. Now it's you and all of Humanity is not just right. you and all of humanity, it's you and all creatures. Yes. Now it's not just, a, but even what we call an inanimate world, you, you begin to, to, so you see more and more deeply right. the unity behind it as you let go of the separateness. And so, but the nuclear family may be a starting point where we realize, okay, I get the first hints of this unconditional love with mm -hmm. my child and my spouse. Yes. Even there, we're not good, we're not perfect at it, but, but right. it, it's like training, it, it's like, um, training wheels on a bicycle we're just yeah. learning to ride the bike of love in our families right and realize that uh ultimately it extends everywhere but it usually takes most of us a lifetime or more to wake up to that like a which is interesting to me why would consciousness let itself get so immersed uh -huh. that it doesn't even wake up in this whole lifetime a really really deep and interesting question yeah because it's not about 
any individual lifetime, right? It's this intergenerational ongoing game of inquiry or whatever it is. And maybe that's, it sounds to me kind of like software bootstrapping in a way that it's coming online more and more and more. And maybe those were the seeds Christ was trying to sow, right? You know, love, love one another, act as one family. It's not like you can just immediately put that into practice, but he's at least uh, putting something there that we can bootstrap on perhaps. That, that, that's right. No, I agree with that. But then I think that we may find that at the very deepest level, if we could take the perspective of just the one mm-hmm. and realize that space and time is just an artifact of projection, then the whole Big Bang through our whole evolution is in some sense just an artifact of consciousness looking at itself through a particular lens. Right. It's, not, it's not in some sense... Well, it's interesting. So I was about to say it's not deeply true. It, 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 it's it's true of that perspective on itself, but it's not true in the deeper sense of it. And and trying to understand what that means, I think, is going to be really how yeah. science and spirituality want to, will want to move forward. What does it really mean that when we look at ourselves through a, pers- a perspective, now we're getting this all the Big Bang and you know thirteen point eight billion years of evolution so far and 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 looked like there was no life and no life and then human life and competition that's what consciousness looks like through this particular projection why is consciousness looking at itself through that projection what what is consciousness doing and and growing and learning what is the one doing and how and ultimately we already have part of the answer we know that conceptually we can never completely understand it And yet we are it. We know it by being it. So mm-hmm. with all these pointers, can we, through a process of both the scientific ideas and the process of going into complete silence and being with ourselves and being with who we are without any concepts and going back and forth, is what somehow that process is what consciousness is about. Mm-hmm. And understanding, so I'm at the very limits of my my thoughts about this right now. It, it seems like... I'm pointing to something very, very deep that, that completely goes beyond me right now, but it's the kind of thing where I think, think science and spirituality working together will, will grow. And, yeah. and, and consciousness itself, in some sense, will know thyself deeply. Mm. Wow, beautiful. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. This has been quite mind-expanding for me, so thank you. Um, I would just that what you finished off there on that this process is what's of primary importance, something about this dynamic process, right? It's not a thing. We can't isolate it. It's there's, it's a dynamic thing. And I'm just, again, the economic, the Mises inside of me, Mises is a great um, philosopher of economics. He would say the market process is irreducible. So I wonder, I can't help but think is this, that very process you're describing, is that the same process Mises was describing in the sphere of just economics some 70, 80 years ago? Um, and perhaps it is truly irreducible. Perhaps we cannot peer below that, that ongoing dynamic exchange process um, that you're describing. Well, if one way possibly, we'll put it this way, von Mises is right if we stay in the headset. Mm. 
If we stay in the headset, then von Mises is right. But is it possible for us to cope with the scientific theory outside the headset? And, and it, wouldn't, it doesn't have to be the whole theory of all of consciousness because we can't get there, but it could be the first, you know, baby theories of consciousness outside the headset mm. that could then show that, that von Mises is true inside the headset, but there's this deeper perspective in which we can, in some sense, reverse engineer what we call economics. Wow. And, and find that, it, that, that that theory of economics um, is an artifact of a projection and that there's a deeper view. Wow. I, I, this is kind of open question to, to pursue. That is that would be extremely exciting. Um, Donald, Don, sorry. Thank you again. This has been a great conversation. Uh, if you could please let my audience know where they can find out more about you or your work. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I have a Twitter feed. It's Donald D at Donald D Hoffman, D-O-N-A-L-D. Another D, so two Ds in a row. Donald D H-O-F-F-M-A-N. And so I, I, I usually um, tweet one or two times a week um some podcasts that i've done or some ideas that i have and i keep pretty much on one theme is just this theme i don't do politics or anything else no. just just this one theme so people can find out about the technical work there and the, and the ideas I'll, I'll of course tweet this podcast when 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 you're done with it awesome. so so that would be it in my book the case against reality and if people are interested in the visual perception side i have a book called um visual intelligence hmm. how we create what we see which for those who for like photographers and artists and people interested in just how we see that book is is less philosophical in, in, in terms of consciousness and more about the specifics of how we um create our visual worlds yeah, it's, hmm. it's more cognitive science so if people are interested in that um they i would recommend that book so. that's very cool very cool i will link to all that in the show notes and Don, thank you again. This has been heck of a journey. Thank you, Robert. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for the kind invitation.